words on water. Hi, welcome to Words on Water, a podcast from the Water Environment Federation. This is the host, Travis Loop. Very important topic for this episode. Uh, another look at uh, the issue of PFAS and how it's impacting the water sector. Uh, this time we're really going to look at the costs that PFAS management and regulation is uh, having on biosolids programs. I'm very excited to have a panel of experts for this episode who are going to help us dig into this. Uh, I have Eric Spargimino. He is an environmental engineer and project manager focusing on biosolids at CDM Smith. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Travis. I have Janine Burke-Wells. She is Executive Director of Northeast Biosolids and Residuals Association and also has a lot of experience working at utilities and as a regulator. Janine, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Travis. And Chris Wilson, he is Chief of Process Engineering and Research at Hampton Roads Sanitation District. Chris, glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you all. All right, so uh, we're going to have a great conversation here. Let's try to, to set the table a little bit before we dig into the issue of uh, costs of PFAS on biosolids programs. And want to let people know this is a uh, we're really going to talk about a new report that has come out that looks at this issue. But first, Chris, could you talk a little bit about from the utility perspective uh, about the challenges that PFAS and PFAS's pose for a utility, particularly its biosolids program? You know, so as a as a regulated entity, wastewater utility, um, and it's hard to say what what the priorities of all, all utilities might be, but I think at the top, the reason why we exist is environmental protection, environmental restoration. And so so things that can adversely impact human health and the environment are sort of our, our paramount concern. Um, but somewhere else high on that priority list is fiscal sustainability. Um, you know, our 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 mission at or our vision at HRC is that future generations will inherit clean water and be able to keep them clean, and that that has something to do with our our technical decisions we make today, as well as our not not making financial decisions that that saddle future generations with with the inability to, to maintain those systems. And so that hits us in two ways here. One is we have to make decisions about biosolids management and understanding something about the, the viability of, of common practices for biosolids management in light of something like PFAS um, definitely warrants some, some discussion and scenario planning, um, especially when you look at, at restrictions that have been imposed on, on land application, landfilling, and things like that. Um, the other place is that um, whether you're a utility that's ratepayer or or tax base funded, um, you need the authority to to go to your ratepayers or tax base to to provide upgrades to 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 treatment processes to protect human health and the environment. And so, clarity from a regulatory standpoint and development of good regulations um, really gives us the authority to to do projects. Um, 
And so, so we think about this particular topic, this PFAS topic, in, in a couple of different ways, long-term and, and sort of short-term, what, what do we have the, the, the reason and the, the authority to, to do projects to tackle? Thank you for that important perspective. Let's pivot to maybe some uh, specific examples. I know that over the past year or two, th past few years, um, you know, there's been some issues in New England uh, and some of the states there uh, around biosolids and PFAS and uh, regulations um, and, and impacts that uh, fell then on utilities and, and biosolids programs. Janine, could you kind of give an, an overview of some of the things that that happened over the past few years and um, the, you know the impacts that that were felt by utilities and, and biosolids programs? Sure, Travis. Uh, yeah, there's been a major concern here in New England. We're all very concerned about PFAS. As, as Chris said, it's our objective to get the water as clean as possible. Um, but before I get into the impacts, Travis, uh, these we have checkerboard regulations here in this region. Um, I just want to remind everyone why we spend so much time and money on biosolids recycling programs. And it's because there are numerous proven benefits of doing so. There are regulations in place for managing this, these materials and ensuring that they're safe for their intended uses. They're a great source of recycled organic matter, as well as macro and micronutrients. They've been shown to improve the ability of soil to store carbon, which is an important tool for tracking climate change. Uh, it can reduce fertilizer, pesticide use as well. So, and if you ask anyone who's used these to enhance soil health, they'll attest to these benefits. So the biggest impact of these checkerboard regulations, in my opinion, is the loss of these beneficial reuse programs. Uh, there's only one state in New England, actually, that has a screening limit for PFAS and land-applied biosolids. That's Maine. But we're seeing states set very low drinking water standards. Again, commendable. Um, but without looking at the science and especially the unintended consequences of these limits that they're setting. And as you know, drinking water standards become surface water standards, which eventually end up as limits in uh, water resource recovery facility discharges. Uh, so the concerns about land application, which have not been fully investigated, have led to major market upsets in this region. You know, it's killed a couple of longtime successful beneficial reuse programs. Uh, it's caused the local utilities to ship and truck their landfill, their uh, biosolids to landfills out of state uh, and a lot in this region a lot of them are going to Canada in fact and further and further away from the source which again climate change impacts um, and so as you know biosolids management is currently a three tool with incineration and landfilling being the other two legs mm. and capacity for both of those in this in this region are extremely limited and because of PFAS regulations impacting these beneficial use programs, we're seeing market upsets basically, and the cost of managing biosolids has increased significantly. Mm. Uh, thank you for that overview. And I, I wondered if you could also talk about how you know these issues what's what's happened in new england and, and other places around the country i you know i think there's other states um where this has kind of moved to the forefront how that all led to this report 
being commissioned on the cost of of PFAS on biosolids programs? Sure. Um, yeah. So PFAS was a huge topic of discussion at the 2020 New England Water Environment Association conference held in Boston in January. And our members, like mostly local utilities and biosolids managers, were <clears throat> extremely stressed out by PFAS. And basically someone suggested a meeting of the minds to see how we could help out these local utilities. And the end result of that meeting was two asks from our members. One was outreach materials to help them communicate about PFAS to their customers and stakeholders um, and what they're doing about it and also a study of the cost impacts that our members were experiencing that they were telling us about, but that we really hadn't documented as a result of these PFAS regulations. So we thought that was a great idea. We reached out to WEF for support. Thank you very much, WEF. Uh, NACWA jumped on board as well, and we put out a request for proposals. We selected CDM Smith. They had a great team that they brought to work on this. They did a survey and a report on these cost impacts on the biosolids management uh, programs here and basically focused on New England, at least initially it was, but it, it did expand to look at other areas of the country. And I'm sure Eric can talk a little bit more about the report that CDM Smith prepared. Sure. Eric, um, love to hear uh, you know, like to hear a bit about the process of how the report came together. Um, but could you kind of um, go over that quickly and then jump into the top findings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, we, you know, we saw, you know, and I, I guess my my other hat too is um, I'm the the biosolids and residuals chair for the New England Water Environment Association. Um, so, um, you know, that paired with um, you know just CDM Smith's, you know desire and belief in um, a lot of what, you know, Nebro, WEF, and NACWA are doing uh, with, on the PFAS front, we wanted to support it. Um, so, so we, you know, proposed on the project, um, we, we uh, decided to actually match the, the WEF and NACWA funds with our own R&D funds, so we could really turn this into a great study. Um, and we, um, you know, we, we hit the ground running. We, uh, it was a joint effort between everyone at Nebra, NACWA, and WEF, and, and CDM Smith, and, um, we uh, we surveyed about 29 entities, um, which you know anyone that's ever you know worked on on case studies and surveys like this, you know you usually expect around a 10% return um, on your phone calls and outreach. But you know we we had such a strong team, uh, you know, with everyone involved that um, we we just got phenomenal response from uh, from the various utilities that we reached out to, uh, some of the merchant uh, facilities, you know, private entities that were processing sludge. Um, all the way to uh, to farmers um, and different types of end users, whether it be landfill, uh, incineration, um, or or actual land suppliers. So it was a it was a great sort of comprehensive look. And, and like Janine said, you know, we we started New England centric, but but expanded quickly to the rest of the country. Um, and uh, you know, top findings overall, we we saw a. 37% increase in biosolids uh, handling costs from, and then that's basically the cost leaving the gate, leaving the facility. And that's from, you know, basically the, when PFAS really started to hit the map for wastewater utilities. Um, so like in Maine, that was, you know, when the sludge moratorium went into play. Um, and like in Massachusetts, uh, there still isn't PFAS regulations, but it's very, but it's very strong on their, um, 
on their priority list right now because it's they sort of know what's coming based on what's happened in New Hampshire uh, and Vermont and Maine. Um, so you know we had that overall 37% increase, but if if you were to factor out states like Massachusetts who didn't have regulations yet and some of the incineration facilities who you know at the moment aren't as impacted as some of the land suppliers. Um, you know, one example would be New Hampshire. We saw a 134% increase in their biosolids handling costs. Uh, similarly, in Maine, a um, 71% increase across the utilities surveyed. Um, and then through Michigan, a 104% increase in the utilities surveyed. Um, so, you know, that that's that's their their bottom dollar. That's their budget. You know, that's, um, mm. you know, that directly impacts ratepayers. So, so part of what we did as part of the study was um, try to look at, you know, how that basically trickled down and how that would impact the ratepayer. So, so what does that percent mean in, you know, dollars and cents? Um, and then we also got into, you know, the status of the, um, the, the treatment technology market. So, um, you know, what, technologies are out there and available that could treat wastewater and biosolids um, you know are they established or are they still emerging um, and what potential costs would those um, or what cost implications would those have on, an, on a utility if they were forced to um, treat down to these drinking water standards that, that Jeannie and Chris had mentioned that that are being um, applied to biosolids. Hmm, very interesting good stuff. Um, I know that I think there were some specific case studies that were done as part of this report uh, that drilled down even further. Um, I was wondering if if maybe you and Janine could talk about a few of those and, and what they illustrate about the costs for utilities. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we, we of the 29, we, we did a little deeper dive into a handful of case studies. Um, you know, and they were they were very revealing to get into that deeper dive. You know, so um, like Wixom, Michigan, um, they were very directly impacted in the sense that um, you know their the state Eagle um, program or, or their uh, I stands for for Eagle, but um, but their their equivalent Department of Environmental Protection. Um, uh, I thought had a very proactive approach to PFAS. So they worked with uh, this facility in Wixom, Michigan, to identify sources upstream that were causing the high concentrations of PFAS uh, at the facility and in the biosolids. Um, and they were able to uh, basically identify that industrial source, a single source, um, have them implement a granule activated carbon filtration system. Um, and that um, pretty quick dropped the concentration to the facility um, two orders of magnitude. Um, with that, they quick, pretty quickly saw a reduction in, you know, the concentration of their biosolids. And at the time of this study, they had two large holding tanks filled with sludge that um, the concentrations were so high that it had to be hauled off site. It has waste and the state was helping them with that too. Um, so it was a great example of the state working with the utility to um, make sure that the solids were properly disposed of and looking upstream to see what what the sources were to the plant since since these plants you know are nor are, aren't creators of PFAS um, they're just taking what's what's being sent to them and I think the state did a really good job at um, realizing that and, and helping the utility hmm. interesting Janine is there anything you'd like to chime in on on kind of the findings of the report and case studies and costs for utilities yeah sure I mean I'd, I'd focus on uh, 
some of the New England states, um, and it's really no coincidence, the states where we're seeing major impacts are ones that have had serious PFAS contamination issues, but generally from firefighting foams and other things. But in Maine, for example, there were some a couple of high profile cases contaminated milk coming from dairy farms where uh, biosolids had been applied, amongst other things. So uh, in Maine, for example, the uh, Lewiston Auburn Water Pollution Control Facility, um, these guys are a regional leader in resource recovery. They were one of the first, they were the first in the state to embrace anaerobic digestion to reduce the volume solids and while producing energy. And they even received the governor's environmental excellence award. So this is a is a, a really well-run facility. And they had a successful 20-year beneficial reuse program with 100% of its solids being recycled. But when the state, state set some extremely low limits for biosolids, these screening limits, which very few products were able to meet initially, um, Lewiston Auburn had to start sending its solids to landfills and looking for other options. Uh, the land application programs were so cost effective uh, that the increases were significant here in this case. But Lewiston Auburn basically, you know, they had to defer some capital improvements, they cut some staff, but they managed somehow to hold the line on, on the rates. But yeah, cost impacts were significant there. And the other New England case I would highlight is Concord, New Hampshire, the state capital, which had a 40-year program of successfully recycling biosolids. Um, we're pretty sure there were some industrial impacted or some industrial discharges that impacted that treatment facility. They're also treating landfill leachate. Uh, but their bio their biosolids were identified as one of the sources of contamination for some drinking wells. So th that's been addressed. That was quickly addressed. But Concord had to make a decision, risk based decision, and they basically decided to stop their beneficial reuse program. So now they ship their solids to Canada, which has doubled their biosolids management costs. And Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their annual cost increases were over a half a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. They they went up uh, almost um, a little over two hundred percent, and Lopco went up about one hundred thirty eight percent. I wondered if uh, Eric, you know, you could talk. Uh, maybe this is a, a methodology question here, um, just about how the sample size and the, you know, the respondents you got and all these kind of things um, do reflect you know, sector-wide trends, if you will, um, that it, that this these numbers, that that big percent cost is um, something that can be fairly extrapolated out to around the country. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, a, a 29 um, a, a, or a sample size of 29 statistically is is small and, it, and it's tough to rely on. Um, although, you know, like I was saying, if, if anyone has worked on one of these studies, um, they know how hard it is um, to get uh, responses at a utility, especially when it comes to costs and, and getting it apples to apples is is incredibly difficult to figure out what everyone's cost is leaving the gate. Um, so, so our responses here, you know, were incredible and I, I thank everyone that was involved. Um, but, but I do think it's a great indicator of, you know, what we can see in the future. Um, you know, of the states that we identified and the entities that we selected, 
um, or got and got responses from. Um, you know, many of them were selected because we knew they had impacts. Um, and in some cases, some, you know, were incineration facilities that um, we also knew weren't impacted, but were thinking about it, um, you know, just to learn basically what they were doing to prepare. Um, so, you know, I, I, I very much feel that, you know, because of all that, that 37%, um, you know, in some cases, it's going to be dramatically higher. Um, depending on how the state reacts, um, you know, li like some of those examples that Janine mentioned, New Hampshire and Maine, um, where, you know, in cases like um, like Michigan, where the state has a little bit more proactive approach of looking upstream, um, you know, as a whole, Michigan was up 104%, which is a lot. Um, but, you know, that is a state that predominantly relies on land application. Um, you know, and if you compare it to, you know, the what Janine had mentioned, New Hampshire and Maine, it's it's um, it is less. So I think it's going to be state by state, and and projections on a percentage based will be largely based on how the states react and what kind of guidance EPA gives. Um, but I do think it's a great litmus test for for the future and for uh, how we approach these things. Oh, fantastic. You know, Eric, it's a, hey, Eric. Um, Chris, so while you're talking there, thinking about the the cost of different different management approaches, <clears throat> say for a state that's doing land application, you know the the other states that or other utilities that may have some some risk would be a utility that that chose to do, you know, send biosolids into a you know third party commercial product production. And there's a lot of risk there, right? So like so that entity has a product and now they're putting biosolids in, maybe out of commercial benefit, convenience, you know, whatever. And there's risk from a utility standpoint. And it's very likely that the, likely the utility did an evaluation, broad evaluation, land application, generation, all these other, other options and chose that for any number of reasons, cost and non-cost. And so, so it's interesting to think about, you know, where do you, where do you pivot to when you have already chosen to, to do a sort of a uh, sort of increased value, value added type product like like compost or or an, an agricultural admixture admixture type type thing um i think that you know in some in some cases that's the other the other shoe to drop where you have to you've made these decisions to do something sort of atypical for any number of drivers and so like like just like well i'll just pivot back to land app or pivot back to you know incineration just maybe not on the table um and so it's, it's interesting when we think about what technologies need to be developed um, to deal with the the sort of the end of the pipe issue while we're thinking upstream more more proactively. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's an excellent point, Chris. Um, you know, you, you look at a facility like Hooks at New Hampshire, um, they uh, recently purchased a dryer um, and they didn't they didn't do it for purposes of you know relying on land application um, they would like to land apply class a product um, but they did it for volume reduction because you know they are proactive and smart enough to know that if you know they can no longer land apply in the state of new hampshire at least their volume is down and they can get it somewhere else cheaper than they could when they were hauling a dewatered product um, so it's a total mind shift that you know folks are thinking about investing in things like dryers um, and not looking at, you know, class A land application as, as their, you know, end use. Mm. Well, talking about 
technology solutions. Um, I'd love to to pivot to that a little bit when it comes to dealing with PFAS at, um, at you know at these water treatment facilities and and for biosolids. What are some of the what are some of the helpful technologies uh, in this? in this fight, you know, you all mentioned at the very beginning the importance of uh, and the focus of our sector on always wanting the cleanest water and the, the cleanest um, recovered resources that we can possibly have. So, yeah, what, what's the technology landscape looking like? So, unfortunately, a, a lot are uh, emerging. Um, you know, there are some great emerging technologies out there, um, some involving plasma. Um, you know, there's some really promising studies ongoing with foam fractionation, um, you know, and, and a lot of them show a lot of promise, uh, like supercritical water oxidation, you know, it, in theory, it should work and at bench scale it works, um, but a lot of these have yet to prove themselves uh, at scale. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited to see in the next year or two or three or four um, to see how these technologies can, you know, establish themselves and work at full scale. Um, because there are other drinking water technologies that, you know, are a little more tried and true and established, you know, like reverse osmosis, ion exchange and GAC, uh, we know they work, uh, but they work for drinking water. They, they don't necessarily scale well to a wastewater matrix um, and especially not to biosolids. Um, you know, the report gets into a little bit of the, the scalability of that and the, the order of magnitude costs for what it would take to try to put drinking water treatment technologies such as these um, on, a, on a wastewater treatment facility. Hmm. Uh, further thoughts on technologies from either uh, Janine or Chris? Yeah, I'll chime in here. I mean, the there was a whole chapter in this report on emerging or potentially useful technologies, and yeah, Eric Eric covered most of the big ones. Uh, but pyrolysis right now for biosolids is probably the one that is commercially available and have has several facilities in operation. Um, the, my concern is a lot of these emerging technologies are energy intensive, <laughs> which if we're talking about sustainability, mm -hmm. as Chris mentioned at the outset, uh, that's a big concern. But uh, NEBRA in particular, we've been we've been trying to highlight these innovative technologies and we've had several webinars on these different supercritical water oxidation, uh, pyrolysis and biosolids drying. And we're really trying to push that, uh, the development of these technologies. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and and as, as, in, as important as it is to, to keep on driving technology development and getting, you know, higher, this is a really complicated compound because it's meant to, it's meant to survive high temperatures. So getting really high temperatures without melting ash and biosolids, like technology development around that and, and knowledge development around that, that's really important. I think Eric pointed out earlier that um, you know, maybe the thing that we know we know absolutely works pound for pound, and it doesn't matter what contaminant we're talking about, is source control. Um, mm. is our best tool, best tool that we have while we're thinking about these technologies in parallel. That's a phenomenal point, Chris, is that it's all about um, cutting cutting this pollutant, cutting the PFAS off at the source, preventing it from getting into our, our water uh, in the first place. Um, I, I also wanted to talk uh, lastly about 
productive regulatory approaches by states. Um, you know, we, we mentioned throughout the conversation some of the different scenarios that have unfolded over the past few years. Um, and I, I think that the biosolids community um, has found some of the regulatory approaches by states to be more uh, productive and wondering if you all might want to, to outline uh, some of those. I'll, I'll chime in first and just uh, reiterate what Eric already mentioned about the state of Michigan. Uh, very common sense approach addressing the most significant risks first and focusing on source reduction, which we all know works. Uh, and just to remind you, treatment facilities are not the source of these chemicals, uh, so there is the need to look upstream and reduce the inputs to the treatment facility. So Michigan in particular, I think, has taken a very common sense approach to this and focused on the industrially impacted wastewater treatment facilities and biosolids. Uh, New Hampshire actually has taken a similar approach, focusing on pretreatment and helping all treatment facilities look upstream to knock down those PFAS concentrations. So those two states, I think, uh, I believe Colorado is another one who's been very thoughtful on this. I think Eric talked to that, but I'm not sure, Eric. Anyway, those are a few that I wanted to highlight. Sure. Uh, any further thoughts from, from Eric or Chris on the kind of regulatory approaches that, um, you know, make sense from the, the water sector's perspective or, or kind of what, you know, big picture generically, you know, we'd be hoping for? Sure. And, and I, I think it's important, you know, holistically that I think that the states that are, are, you know, doing a good job and, and you know, thinking, uh, looking at this in a, in a very common sense method and, and looking at the science available to them, um, you know, they realize that, you know, there is no established method for testing PFAS in biosolids or, or EPA approved method. Um, you know, actually just today I saw a memorandum from EPA uh, indicating that they hope to have an approved method within 2021. Um, you know, so so with that in mind, you know, and thinking about exposure pathways and human health, um, you know, drinking water is obviously the low hanging fruit. So th that's where you can most directly impact human health. But biosolids, you know, there's a number of pathways before it gets to um, to humans and, and it gets exposed to them. You know, even for those land applied. Um, so we need to look at the science for how that happens so that we're not applying drinking water limits to biosolids. Uh, we need to look at thresholds and we need to look at, you know, the leachability of PFAS from biosolids. I mean, really look at all the, the science that's available to us and some of those ongoing studies. And there are some, you know, states like Colorado and Michigan that I think are, have been doing this effectively. So I'm hoping um, there are other states that can learn from that. Um, you know, Massachusetts in, is in the process of, you know, their their stakeholder outreach now. So, you know, Nebra, Janine, and myself and others, a lot of others are, uh, you know, doing our best to educate, you know, the Massachusetts uh, DEP folks on these studies so that they can, you know, really factor in everything as they um, approach these limits. Sure. Well, uh, thank you, all, all three of you, for the great perspective and information uh, in this episode. 
um, in the description uh, on the, the podcast uh, website in the podcast uh, description people will be able to find a link to the report that we discussed today but again thank all three of you for your time and, and the information thank you, thank you for much. having us travis yeah yeah thanks for having us this is great words on water